Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Um, I understand you guys are in a series called Extended Family, um, where you're looking at really the dynamic of relationships, or maybe what are relationships in an individualistic culture. Relationship is the opposite of aloneness. An alone person is not in a relationship. So when you talk about relationships or the extended family of God's family, you're getting at the central nerve of the story of the Bible. Do you know what the first problem in the Bible was? Aloneness. Genesis 2. The man was alone, not in relationship, and it was not good. And then at the heart of the gospel is God's desire to reconcile man, you, back in relationship with him and relationship with each other. So when we talk about relationships and this idea of an extended family, you are at the central nerve of the gospel. So it's an exciting series to get to join you guys for. Why don't you um, join me in praying about our time looking at scripture and then we'll get into our message. Lord, we thank you um, that you've come to us to deal with the great tragedy of loneliness and aloneness. Um, However introverted or extroverted we may be, it is not good for any of us to be permanently alone. So I pray now you come by the power of your Holy Spirit and teach us what it means to be in an extended family of dynamic relationships by your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
But I want to use a more modern piece of literature, a book that was written just a few years ago, as a way into 1 Corinthians 12. I came across this book doing some summer reading. It was written by a young woman named Marina Keegan. Essentially what the book is, it's a collection of essays Marina wrote while she was a college student. And these essays in this book that's been published has grown in popularity not only because Marina was a very gifted young writer, but because tragically she died in an automobile accident just two weeks after her college graduation. So her friends, her professors put her work together and published it. And I want to read for you a little snippet from the last essay she wrote. It was written for the Yale School newspaper just prior to her graduation. Listen to what Marina wrote. She's reflecting on college here. She says, college is full of tiny circles we pool around ourselves. Acapella groups, sports teams, houses, societies, and clubs. These groups make us feel loved and safe and part of something, even on our loneliest nights. We won't have those next year. We won't live on the same block as all our friends. This scares me. More than finding the right job or the right city or the right spouse, I'm scared of losing this web we're in, this elusive, indefinable opposite of loneliness. She goes on to say, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say, that is what I want out of life. Pretty profound for a 22-year-old, isn't it? She's putting her finger on something that we all understand. Marina was essentially saying that, look, as I launch out of college with all these opportunities in front of me, I'm aware enough to know that even if I get the job I want, if I get to live in the city I want, and if I get to have the lifestyle I want, if I don't have this community, this web of relationships, these tiny circles, if I don't have this community, in some ways I have nothing. She's putting her finger on the common need for community. What is community? Essentially, a community is a circle or a web of relationships. Often it's, it's tiny at times and it can look bigger, but it's a place where we are loved and where we are known as we really are. It's a place where you can be comfortable in your own skin. You don't have to act anymore. This is what she had experienced in college. Many people can relate to this. There are seasons of life where because of circumstances, typically, often it can be found at school when you're just close to people and you build these relationships. It seems so easy and natural. And then just on the eve of graduation, she's terrified. She says, it scares me. What if I'll never have this again? Community, according to this young woman, is essential. It's not an add-on. It's not optional. And we know this. We've experienced this ourselves. Community is essential. We need it. But we also know that community is not easy. It's not guaranteed. Community is hard to build. It's hard to maintain. And it's sometimes hard to come by at all. And 
When you enter into community, whether it's in a, the community of, of your, your marriage or with your family or the community of your church or a sports team or the community of your team at work, what you begin to realize is that as much as you need community with people, people are prickly. Our elbows are sharp. If you really got to know me, some of you might not like me. I'm an Eagles fan. It might just be me and Matt at the end of a Sunday. Just, just the two of us building our little community. We're prickly. We want to be close to each other, but the closer we get, the more we feel how sharp our elbows are. Community is essential, but community is also hard. Paul knew this. Do you know that St. Paul's mission in life was to preach the gospel to people who had not heard it? But do you know that was just part one? As soon as Paul preached the gospel in all these little towns in the ancient world, what did he have to do next? He had to build a community. These little churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, and in Corinth. As soon as the gospel landed, it created a community. This is what the gospel does. And Paul would spend his time revisiting these little communities, writing letters. And what you see as you walk through the letters, as I hope you've seen as you walk through Corinthians, is that community is hard. The people weren't always getting along. There was infighting. There was division. And so Paul is laboring not just to teach the gospel, but to show how the gospel builds community, and uniquely holds it together. When you come to 1 Corinthians 12, where we're at today, you're in the middle of what I would call Paul's dissertation on community. There's nowhere else in his letters where he deals with it at length, like he does here. From 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, Paul is dealing, he says this over and over again, he's dealing with the Corinthians when they come together. He says it several times, when you come together, when you're one, and then he starts addressing issues that come up when they're together. In chapter 11, he's dealing with male-female relationships, how men and women ought to interact when they're together. Then he moves into dealing with spiritual gifts. How should we use our different gifts when when we're together? Then he goes into talking about love and how the community needs love at the center of it. And here in chapter 12, You might say Paul is laying out the anatomy or structure of Christian community. How does it actually work and how does it hold together? What's the secret to Christian community? And so I want to walk us through part of chapter 12, and I want to draw just a few observations about the anatomy or structure of Christian community and see what it can teach us about our communities as churches and our communities out in the world. So three observations. First, we'll notice the centrality of community. Then we'll notice the unity of community. And then we'll talk about the purpose of community. So if you find roadmaps helpful, um, there's a little roadmap for you. So first, Paul makes the point that community is central to Christianity. It is not an optional add-on for extroverts. Community is essential. Let me point this out um, by noting two verses and the metaphor Paul uses in these verses. Verse 12 and verse 27. I don't know if we have slides, um, but there we go. 
Okay, so let me read these for you. Paul says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. That's how he begins his thought here. How he ends his thought in verse 27 is this. He says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. What's going on here? Paul is using a metaphor to help us understand what community is. So he's saying, if you want to understand what community is, let's first talk about what a human body is. A human body is one body with several members. Now, why is he using this metaphor? He's using this metaphor because, on the one hand, it stresses the idea that a member only truly understands who they are in relation to their community. If you said, hey, I'm a member of the local basketball club, to really understand what you mean by having a membership there, you have to understand something about what the basketball club does. So right away, Paul's saying, we're members of something bigger than ourselves. It's, It's a cut against total autonomy or individualism. And then if you think about this image of a body and members, Paul's underscoring the unique dependence we have for one of others, for each other. Let me me explain what that means. That's probably a little confusing. Paul could have used a lot of images to talk about membership. He could have said, a soldier is a member of an army. Therefore, if you want to understand Christian community, you're all soldiers, part of an army. And you might say, okay, I get that. We need the larger army. However... An individual soldier, by himself or herself, still makes some sense, right? An individual soldier could never go join the army, and they could still walk around and shoot their gun and go on a mission. So, by themselves, they make a little bit of sense. But Paul doesn't use that kind of image. He uses a human body. Now, if I said, okay, an eyeball is a member of the human body... Does an eyeball make any sense by itself? What is it seeing for? You could set an eyeball on a stand and you could say it's interesting, but by itself, by itself, it doesn't make sense. The eyeball only makes sense when it's located in the larger organism of the body. So Paul, in a very subtle way, by using this image, is saying a Christian is uniquely dependent on the community to make any sense out of who they are. It's a pretty interesting image, isn't it? So he's saying the community is central. It's not an optional add-on, whereas a soldier may go join the militia, he may not. It's completely central. Community is central. And let me tell you one of the ways that impacts me. If somebody asks me, Sam, how are you doing in your Christian walk? How are you you doing in your faith? I might say, you know, I'm having quiet times every morning, listening to Tim Keller, Johnny Christina sermons while I'm in the car, worshiping when I'm in the car. I think I'm doing pretty well. If St. Paul heard me say that, he, he couldn't even make sense of it. He would say, those things are important, but tell me how you're doing in the context of the community. How are you doing in your small group? Are you caring for somebody? Have you encouraged someone lately? Have you been encouraged lately? 
Tell me about your life in the body. You see how our first reaction is to think about how we're doing by ourselves? And this cuts against two things. It cuts against something Protestants love. We love good preaching. We'll slip into church late sometimes. We'll slip out early and somebody say, well, at least I made the sermon. And then on the Catholic spectrum, people will slip in just to catch the sacraments. Well, I, did, I missed the sermon, I missed the music, but I got the sacrament. These things are so important. But you see, the dynamism, the centrality of community is missed. To be a Christian is to be immersed in the body the way an eye is lodged in a head. So, that's our first observation. Paul says if you want to talk about community and Christianity, you need to know it's central. This is not a peripheral point or a side conversation. And this naturally leads into our second point, our second observation, and it has to do with unity. As soon as you tell people they need to be in community, you have to deal with how do you hold it together with harmony and peace. What does Paul have to say about the unity of Christian community? And he talks about unity by trying to balance between what you might call an inferiority complex and a superiority complex. Where do we see these things? Um, If we have a slide for verse 15, we can put this up. Paul first deals with the problem of inferiority. He says, essentially, if, if a particular person feels inferior or is treated inferior, it's going to hurt the unity of your community. Here's how he makes this point, verse 15. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Why is Paul talking about feet? And at this point of Paul's own little sermon, he kind of has body parts walking onto a stage and talking to us, if you will. So this is the first body part we see, and it's a foot. And he's saying if the foot says, I don't belong because I'm just a foot, that actually doesn't make it any less a part of the body. Why does he start with a foot? In the Mediterranean world, feet were unspeakably unclean. People wore sandals. They didn't even have anything like Crocs, just sandals. And they walked around on dusty roads. They were not paved roads. So just imagine how dirty people's feet were. There wasn't a normal shower system and baths. People's feet were very dirty. You try to keep your feet covered. In fact, it was a great insult to show someone the bottom of your foot in this culture. Paul is starting off by talking about a member of a community who doesn't feel clean and doesn't feel worthy. Many of us can relate to points in our life when we feel this way. And Paul is saying, forbid it that anyone should buy that lie, that they are not necessary for the body. Paul is essentially saying everyone is essential. When I was in seminary, I lived up in New England, and I went to a little, a little Anglican church in Amesbury, Massachusetts. And there are about, this church was maybe 120 people, and there's about 15 seminarians who would go, and you know, we would all sit in our pew, and we, we had our Greek Bibles, and we couldn't read Greek, but we were, we were just getting into the flow of being young seminarians, and we ha- were getting big heads and felt a little full of ourselves. And in my first year at this church, I got to know a man named Greg, 
Greg would have been called by many the foot. He was in between public housing and homelessness the whole time I knew him. He was in his 60s. And each Sunday, he would come up to the seminarians. He felt like we were more accessible um, than other people. And he would talk to us. And what I began to realize was that Greg was brilliant. He asked me, Sam, what do you make of the imprecatory psalms? I'd say, I don't know what imprecatory means, Greg. <laughs> and then he'd start to unpack some point about theology. And what I, be, what I co- had come to learn was that at one point, Greg, Greg had actually been educated at one of the best schools in our country and was on the short list of someone who could potentially be the next governor of Massachusetts. And he had a public fall. And he lost his family, his wife and his daughter over it. And he never recovered emotionally. It broke him. And here is this broken man. He had one blazer he could put on and one bow tie. His teeth were starting to fall out. He was never very clean, but he came to church every Sunday. And I'll say this to you. I preach out of the conversations I had with Greg. He asked me harder questions about life than anyone else in that church. He was essential to that church community. But some people would have thought he was just a foot. You never know how God is planning on using you. But St. Paul would tell you this. You are essential. So that's the first point about unity. Paul says everyone is essential. There is no room for treating people as though they're inferior Then he moves to the problem of superiority. Another problem we can fall into. He says in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Here Paul is speaking of parts of the body that would have had preeminence. He starts with the eye. Again, in the Mediterranean culture, many people would be covered almost head to toe. And especially with women, the only thing you'd be able to see was their eye. So how an eye looked, when it blinked, how wide it opened during a conversation would mean everything. The eye had preeminence. So here Paul is dealing with folks in the church who fall into what I would call a superiority complex. And the real danger of a superiority complex is that we buy the lie of self-sufficiency. You start to think that what you do in your community, what you bring to your school or what you bring to your church, is the most important thing. Let me tell you, this can happen for a young preacher. You start to think, well, I preached a sermon. I, I re- it's really important if I show up this morning. Or maybe you you lead worship. What we really need is the worship. Or maybe you set up signs and you help with parking. You think, well, if people didn't know where the building is, they'd never be able to make it here. Maybe you help with sound over here. And you think, well, if you didn't run this, you wouldn't be able to hear me because my mic wasn't working. Maybe you lead a small group really well during the week and you say, you know, it's the small group ministry that makes our church work. And the list goes on and on. Now, all these things are so important. They actually are essential. But none of them are sufficient in and of themselves. We need each other. There's no room for superiority. 
When I was little, maybe middle school, um, fifth grade probably, I loved basketball. I loved it, and I, I was at the perfect age that my dreams of maybe making the NBA hadn't yet been crushed while Michael Jordan was peaking as an athlete. And I remember one weekend tuning in to watch Chicago Bulls game, and you know the reason I was tuning in was to see Jordan play. Now, Jordan was you know, dressed in his warm-up outfit. He was walking around taking shots, and then the game started, and he was on the bench. And the game proceeded to go by, and he never went into the game. I was so frustrated by this. And then the report came out after the game that Michael Jordan could not play because of an ingrown toenail. I didn't even know what that was. So I said, Dad, Jordan, Jordan's not playing for an ingrown toenail. And he said, those can be really painful. And I thought, how, how could this physical specimen not play because of something with his toenail? And evidently, in order for this six-foot-six frame with these bulging muscles to go down the lane, launch off his calf muscle, hold his torso tight, raise his shoulder up, and let the ball fall off his finger into the hoop. In order for him to do that, his right toenail had to be working properly. (laughs) Why? Because every member of the body is essential. And nobody, while they watch a basketball game, thinks of LeBron James or Michael Jordan's toenail. They go unnoticed. They're tucked inside that shoe. Some of us feel that way in our community. We go unnoticed. Nobody realizes that if we, if we weren't functioning the way we ought to be, the whole thing wouldn't be working as it should be. There is no inferiority and there is no superiority in Christian community because every member is essential and no single member is sufficient. So that's how unity works in Christian community. One more observation, and we'll move to close. What's the purpose of Christian community? Why did God make community central for Christianity? Would it not be more expedient and more efficient if God would just equip each individual person in this room with everything they need to be effective for his kingdom? So let's just say he gave Johnny the gift of preaching, the gift of administration, the gift of evangelism, the gift of deeds of mercy, the gift of hospitality. So Johnny could just essentially stay at home. He could preach the sermon to himself. And then he had all the gifts. So if he spoke in tongues, he then interpret that for himself. And then he'd go do evangelism out in the community by himself. Then he'd offer hospitality and do it all on his own. And in some ways, he could just stay home and do church. Why did God make it so that we're so interdependent on one another? It almost seems insufficient. Why did he set it up this way? Here's why. God understood Marina Keegan. And he understood that our deeper need is one for intimacy. So God has set his kingdom up so that missional effectiveness demands communal intimacy. You cannot have one without the other. And therefore, at the same moment 
God is doing a work of mercy in the community or he's blessing us with great worship, he is at the same time tying human beings together so that they are not alone. We see this in verse 24 through 26. Let me read some of this to you. It says, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now listen to this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There is a common nerve that we all share that runs through the heart of every one of us in our church communities. If someone in your community suffers, you feel the prick of it. If someone is rejoicing, you are moved to laughter. We all know that suffering is far more bearable when you do it in a community, right? When you have people to come alongside you, when you have a tiny circle to share it with. Community makes suffering more bearable. And you may also know that community makes joy more enjoyable. Did you ever notice that when you experience something that's really neat, like an amazing play in a sports game? Have you guys ever watched a sporting event and seen an amazing catch and gone and run to tell your dad or mom? Have you ever done that? Why do that? Does that increase your joy? It does. For some reason, when we see something amazing, a sunset, or a beautiful mountain landscape, or a great movie, the first thing we want to do is we want to share it. Which is why Paul talks about the idea that if one member is honored, if one member is happy or celebrating, all rejoice together. He's saying that in the dynamism of human community, suffering is more bearable, and rejoicing is more enjoyable. God has made it so that we all need community because he wants to meet the need beneath our needs. Our needs are not just pragmatic when we build organizations and community. They are deeply emotional. So the purpose of community is that along with getting things done, our hearts would find intimacy. I understand that at your church, you guys have small groups and that your small groups do a wide array of things. You may have a jogging group, a breakfast club, a Bible study, a prayer group. Take these groups as gifts from God and pray that by His Spirit, He would guard against any sense of inferiority or superiority in your groups. And that what would begin to happen in these groups is that your church would continue to feel more and more intimate for you. And that you would have a place to suffer and suffer with those who suffer in a way that makes it more bearable. And to laugh and rejoice with those who rejoice. And hear Marina Keegan's voice loud and clear. Because it is the voice of the next generation. And the greatest problem that will face your children and the millennial generation is the problem of loneliness. People have a million gifts and a million talents and a million opportunities, but if they don't have these tiny webs, these tiny circles of community, 
They don't have anything. So Marina Keegan asks, or she says, is there a word for the opposite of loneliness? I think if St. Paul could talk to her, he would say there is. It's the body of Christ. And perhaps increasingly, the answer will be it's Christ Church Vienna. Let's pray. Lord, um, community is essential, but it's not easy. It's probably an overused word. Lord, somewhere deep down, none of us are good alone. And I just pray by the work of your spirit, you would pull people together in meaningful ways in this church and also outside of this church in the local community. And you would teach us all something about your gospel, that when you came to die for us, it was so that we would not remain alone, but that we would be reconciled to you as our Father, and that we could look at one another and truly see each other as brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.